Good morning, Sanctuary. Pastor Mark sends his greetings. He, um, he is in New York. He is speaking at his friend Bill Dandriano's church in Beacon. Um, he found out just a couple weeks ago that Pastor Bill had gone uh, over a year without a Sunday off, uh, preaching every Sunday, and Pastor Mark said, nope, you're taking a week off, and I'm going to come, and you're going to go, you're going to shut your computer off, turn your phone off, have a weekend with your family, and uh, I'm going to come, and on his own bill, his own dime, he's going to come and speak for him. So he is off being a good friend, being a good pastor um, to the good folks in Beacon, New York, so he does send his greetings. We are continuing our series on the Minor Prophets, the Gospel According to. This is actually our final week going through some of the Minor Prophets. I'm sure the last eight weeks have just had you on the edge of your seats with the Minor Prophets. And uh, we're going to wrap things up today. But first, a couple of things that we should have started with. Um, And that's how we read and how we approach Scripture, especially these kind of odd scriptures that we find in the Old Testament, particularly some of the prophetic scripture that we find in the Bible. And I think how we handle these sacred texts is important. I think how we approach them, how we open ourselves up to them, how we handle these texts matters. And I think we ought to come to these texts open-handedly. I think we ought to come with a great deal of humility. I think we ought to come ready to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to us. So what I think we're constantly having to push against, what we're constantly having to resist is the temptation to become fundamentalist in our thinking. So fundamentalism, when it's applied to a Christian context, well, to any context, is this impulse to insist that there is one right, correct, appropriate reading or interpretation of any event. And fundamentalism happens on both sides. And so what we have to resist is this temptation to approach a text uh, specifically like some of the minor prophets and walk away thinking, I know exactly everything that that book had to say to us, to put it in a nice tidy box, to put a bow on it, and to move on to the next issue. I think this is an impulse that we have to resist. And so a more traditional, more faithful way to approach some of these kinds of texts is to come understanding that some of these these texts can be read infinitely. That there's always something more the text wants to say to us. That there's always another interpretation. There's always another reading. And so this is what we encounter when we talk about mystery. When we talk about the mystery of sacred text. We're not implying that mystery, mystery means unknowable. That it's something beyond our reach, beyond our grasp of understanding. What we're saying is that it's infinitely knowable. That the more we keep coming back to the text, the more we keep coming back to Scripture, the more we're encountering the living Word of God. And in order for it to be the living Word of God means we have to be open to the newness of what's being presented to us. So this is a temptation I think we're constantly having to resist, is to boil it all down to some fundamental perspective. And I don't think it always has to be either or. I think it can be both and. There is a historical element to the text that we do have to pay attention to. There are uh, contextual elements that we have to be paying attention to that are some of these 
uh, bedrock foundations of the text, but we need to come open-handed. We need to come ready to hear what it is the Spirit has to say to us. Second, a quick recap of everything that we've heard over the last eight weeks, as this is our final Sunday here in the Gospel according to Hopefully you've picked up on some sense of rhythm, some sense that what these prophets are saying has a familiar undertone, no matter which of the Old, Pro- of the Old Testament prophets we're encountering. So at the risk of being reductionistic, I think all of these prophets deliver more or less the same message. So sorry to waste your time the last eight weeks. <laughs> we could have stuck to one and you'd have gotten basically the whole thing. But I think this basic fundamental message is this. That God's judgment and his posture toward his people and toward creation is always a posture of love and mercy. Time and again, we see that the Israelites fall back into these old rhythms of sin, fall back into these old practices of idol worship, desiring and wanting more than what they think God has offered them. This is the cycle that the Israelites find themselves in. They forget who and whose they are. But time and again, we see that God in his righteousness, he sets out to judge his people, to judge the nations, usually by way of fire or destruction or exile. But the final word from God over his people and the nations is always love. Over the past eight weeks, we've seen that God is a purifying fire meant to unite the nations. We've seen that the destructive work of God is the work of destroying the idols that we've created in our own image and anything that would attempt to dethrone him as the king of our hearts. And we've seen the exile that we so often find ourselves in is actually removing us from the things that we so often trust for power and control and security. So part of the reason that we need to stretch and flex these muscles, teasing out the gospel message in the Minor Prophets, is to bring us to this reality. Hear these words from Origen. If you're paying attention, I'm repurposing something from two weeks ago. Origen says this, A kingdom of sin was in every one of us before we believed. But afterwards, Jesus came and struck down all the kings who possessed kingdoms of sin in us. And he ordered us to destroy all those kings and to leave none of them. So unless Israel's physical wars bore the figure of spiritual wars, I do not think the books of Jewish history would ever have been handed down by the apostles to the disciples of Christ who came to teach peace. So here at the end of this series, we're trying to move past this fundamentalist, reductionist view of these books writing them off as simply a historical account of what happened to the people of Israel. And we're trying to move into the reality that these prophetic works still have a word for us. So let's take a quick overview. Today we're dealing with the book of Hosea. And I don't know why I keep doing this to myself. Um, You should go back some Sunday afternoon and just read through Zechariah. Just read through Zephaniah. Just read through Hosea. Because it's terrifying. Um, So hopefully in some way, where we land at the end of today will be somewhat resembling good news. 
So Hosea is prophesying during the reign of King Jeroboam II. And in short, he was the worst. But what we do see is that under Jeroboam's reign, Israel experienced some of its most prosperous years. Their territory had expanded. Their population was growing. But all of it happened through the oppression and the exploitation of the poor. The rich and the powerful lived in palaces while the poor had nothing. And this gap continued to increase. So Israel had began trading with Egypt and with Assyria. But these allegiances, they were more than just about trade. They were aligning themselves with these neighboring kingdoms of Egypt and Assyria as a way to piggyback on their power, as a way to provide them with some sense of security and safety. And so Israel felt that if it can get in good with the neighboring nations, that they would protect them, or at least treat them less harshly if they chose to attack them. And at the same time, the people of Israel had fallen back into the same old cycles of idol worship. Worshiping God, yes, they were worshiping Jehovah, but it was always through some graven image. So they've fallen right back into the old cycles of idol worship. So Jeroboam's reign, it occurred at the time that the prophets Hosea, Joel, Jonah, and Amos were all living, most of whom condemned the materialism and the selfishness of the Israelite elite of their day. So the more Israel falls away from God, the more they cling to wealth, the more they cling to status, to power, to security, Security in order to protect themselves, but at what cost? So in this way, what some scholars have seen is that the rise of these Old Testament prophets is actually one of the very first movements that we ever see resembling what we would refer to as social justice. At a time when it looks like things are going really well during Jeroboam's reign, there's more prosperity in the land. Their boundaries are expanding. The population is on the rise. It looks like things economically are going well for us. And it's at this time that the prophets step in and say, yes, but at what cost? On whose backs are you building your wealth? At what cost to your own soul and to your own heart are you clinging to the security that is offered to you by these other nations? And so these prophets, they step in and they say, no, this is not right. This is not who you are. This is not who God has called you to be. So this is one of the first expressions of any sort of social justice on a political economic scale. So the prophets, they step in. And when this wealth gap continues to expand, when the distribution of power becomes incredibly unbalanced, they step in with a word of judgment that this is not the people that God had called them to be. This abuse of brother and neighbor is unacceptable. The misuse of power and status is not something that God is going to stand for. And so the book of Hosea is no different. So let's take a look. Hosea is really a collection of writings that happen over the course of about 25 years. And it's really mostly poetry. The book is broken down into three basic sections. The first is about Hosea's broken marriage to a woman named Gomer. And this is a little hard to wade through because what we see is that Hosea takes Gomer as his wife 
And Gomer is unfaithful. And we don't really know whether this unfaithfulness, this adultery happens before they're married or if it's after they're married. But nevertheless, God says to Hosea, you are to go to her. You are to find her. You are to pay off her debts to her past lovers. And you are to reconcile your relationship with her. So what we see happening throughout the whole book of Hosea is that God is saying, Hosea, your life, these experiences that you're having, taking this woman as your own, loving her, being faithful to her, cherishing her in spite of her faults, in spite of her unfaithfulness, and in spite of her adultery, you're experiencing all of this pain and confusion in your relationships. This is how I have felt all along with the people of Israel. That I am the God who came with a covenant on Mount Sinai, with a covenant to be faithful, with a covenant to care for these people. And time and time and time again, they are unfaithful to him. They walk away from him. They worship other idols, which is an act of adultery. But God keeps coming back with love and mercy. So at this point in history, according to the law, to Torah, when his people break covenant, they're unfaithful to him. By law, he's not to come back. He's not to come back to his people and reconcile their relationship. But what we see in this story is that God is more powerful. His love goes further, deeper than the law or any emotive sort of response that we can give. And this is who we're supposed to understand God is. So this first section, it introduces all of the prophecies' main ideas, that Israel has rebelled, but God's own covenant love and mercy are more powerful than Israel's sin, that God is more faithful to forgive us than we are to keep sinning. The second section, it brings us to God's accusation against Israel because you can't have a proper prophecy without some sort of accusation. And he says that there is no knowledge of God in the land. Let's take a look at the text. It's Hosea 4.1. Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. For the Lord has an indictment against the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or loyalty and no knowledge of God in the land. So Hosea is calling out the fact that Israel doesn't really know God. He juxtaposes an intellectual kind of activity of knowing over and against a relative, emotive sort of way of knowing. And God's indictment is that he has desired this relational knowledge since the very beginning of their relationship. He wants for Israel to experience his love, to have the kind of knowledge of God that actually transforms their hearts and lives. Here, Hosea points out the hypocrisy of Israel, that they worship God in the temple, but they break all of the Ten Commandments. He points out that they continue to allow grave injustices to be perpetrated in their communities, and not just injustices, but blatant idolatry. Israel has been trusting their political alliances with Egypt and with Assyria and their own military power instead of trusting God to protect them and to provide for them. So finally, Hosea comes to a bit of a history lesson. Hosea reminds Israel that his family, this family of Israel, 
It has been unfaithful since the very beginning. He reminds them of Jacob lying and deceiving his father out of his blessing. He reminds them of their unfaithfulness in the wilderness. And he reminds them of Israel's choice of King Saul. But Hosea also reminds Israel of who this God is. And this is one of, I think, one of the most beautiful portions of Scripture that we see uh, cover to cover. It's Hosea 11, 1 through 4. This is Hosea reminding his people, the people of Israel, who this God is. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. So Hosea reminds them that God is a loving father who has raised Israel since she was a child. He taught her how to walk. He shared everything he had with her, but still she grows up and rebels. She turns on the father and takes advantage of his generosity. So in this moment, God, like every human parent in the history of the world, he's torn between anger and compassion. But still God comes back. And he comes back with this response that we see in Hosea 11.8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. So Hosea calls to Israel to repent, knowing full well that it won't work. I mean, it hasn't this, this far. But still he knows that God, in the end, is going to heal Israel's waywardness. The book ends with this sort of letter to the reader, if you will. Hosea comes back and he says, Who is wise? And discerning among you. These closing statements, they're a way of saying that this prophecy, these poems, what we've just encountered, they're not just located in the past. They reveal deep truths about God's character and about human nature. And we're to learn that God's heart is to heal and save his people throughout time and space. In the words of Abraham Heschel, He says, Hosea came to spell out the astonishing fact of God's love for man. God is not only the Lord who demands justice. He is also a God who is in love with his people. Here's what I believe the word for sanctuary is today. While Israel was clawing for security through alliances and political maneuvering, Hosea's call is to remember whose you are. 
In doing so, Hosea evokes what Heschel refers to as the divine nostalgia, recalling the early days of God's relationship with Israel and how many of us need to simply remember the early days of our encounters with God, bumping into God, getting a sense of his love for us and his goodness toward us. Just listen again to what God says to his people. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your ancestors. And again, listen to Hosea 11 just one more time because it's so good. He tells them, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. But it was I who taught Israel how to walk. And what did Israel do with their learning? With the gift that God had given them. Rather than using this ability to walk, to continue to move toward God and who he wants them to be as a nation and as a people, they turn their feet and walk away from him. He says, they did not know that I healed them. So other prophets they tend to respond to episodes of human action, some injustice, some looming threat of exile. But what we see Hosea doing is bearing witness to the drama of God's emotive relationship with Israel unfolding. He contrasts this sort of immediate, contingent, emotional reaction of the Lord against an eternal, basic disposition. And here it is, that God's fundamental disposition, his eternal posture toward creation is one of love and compassion. Hosea describes God's love as being like the love of a mother for her child, like the love of a husband and a wife. Remember, God is using Hosea's own story, his own broken relationship to describe how he relates to the people of God. We see it in Hosea 3.1. He says, The Lord said to me again, Go, love a woman who has a lover and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the people of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. I have no idea why raisin cakes is in there. I should have done my due diligence. Next time, I'm coming back to raisin cakes. So no matter what kind of anger or judgment is expressed towards God's people, it's always in order for healing and reconciliation to prosper. It's always for the purpose of bringing us back to who God has called us to be. Again, coming back to this idea of covenant, this is the word most commonly used to describe God's relationship to Israel as a covenant relationship. And covenant is good and fine. It works, but it's pretty utilitarian. Covenant basically says that there's a sense of permanence here. It says that there's a commitment to steadfastness and to mutuality. But what it doesn't acknowledge is the personal depth and emotion of that relationship. So what we see in Israel's story is that it's possible to be engaged through a covenant without always holding up your end of the bargain. For example, everyone say Shemitah. Shemitah. It's a great Hebrew word. The Hebrews have the best words. Shemitah. And it speaks 
to God's commandment to let the land lie fallow. We see this. Every seven years, the people of Israel are called to let the land lie fallow, to give it a rest. You take a break, the land takes a break, everybody takes a break. What's interesting is that there is no evidence anywhere that the people of Israel ever actually practiced it. Nowhere. But we even see this, to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. Sabbath draws us in. It gives us the energy that we need. Heschel says it this way. The Sabbath, the day of rest, gives the universe all the energy it needs to exist for another six days. When we don't rest, when we don't obey this commandment to simply take a day, most of us find ourselves in a place of despair. If you show up at your job and you think, just another day, what am I doing? What is this for? What is the point? The chances are you need to Sabbath. But our human nature, our instinct, when we start to feel that way, when we start to despair, when we start to get down on ourselves, we think we need to be more productive. If I'm more productive, it's going to fix this feeling. So we white knuckle, we do more, we try harder, we exert ourselves, we work on Saturdays, we take our email to the beach with us. We do all of these things instead of letting go. All that to say, there are certain commandments that were present in this covenant relationship that the people of God never followed, but God loved them anyway. So there's a way that covenant works on a functional level, but it's very transactional. And our faith, our spirituality is not a transaction. It's not a switch that we simply flip on and flip off. In this day and age, we don't know what it's like to wait for something. I lived in New York City for a little while, and one of the things that you'd see uh, in the subway would be an advertisement for uh, a band that just released a song like on Spotify. And just think about how wild this is. But you can walk onto the subway, see the poster, pull out your phone, and in, what, three seconds, be listening to the thing. These are the kinds of interactions and experiences that we have all the time. So why would we expect that our faith is going to work any different? When I can pull up the thing, or I have to wait for the thing for three seconds to get the gratification, why would I expect that my faith should function any differently? So one of the things that I've started doing over the past couple of years is I carry an acorn in my pocket. Not all the time, but in different seasons, I carry this acorn with me. And I use it as a reminder that this is what my faith looks like. I found this off the oak tree in my front yard. And it's a bit of a nuisance. There's way too many of these. But it calls me back to remember that this massive, huge oak tree started here. That if my faith is going to develop and be cultivated, it's going to take time. It's not a Spotify song. But we don't like this very much because it takes a lifetime of prayer, a lifetime of daily commitments, a lifetime of daily conversions. 
And so along comes Hosea. And he's one of the first people that we see in the Old Testament to resist the language of covenant and move toward the language of marriage. He's one of the first ones to insist that this arrangement, it looks more like a loving, mutual relationship than it does a contractual obligation. Heschel calls this the living intercourse. See, I think love is the most powerful reality in the world. Songs and poems and stories and movies and films have been made and written about love. And songs and stories and poems and films are going to continue to be made about love. Because not everything that can be said about love has been said yet. We keep coming back to it, but I think we're not so much in love with love as much as we are in love with the idea of what we think love looks like. Heschel says it this way. We come back to this idea of love spiced with temptation rather than phrased in service and depth of understanding. We think about love that happens rather than a love that continues. We love an image of exciting tension rather than of peace. We love an image of love in a moment rather than a love of permanence. An image of fire rather than light. And God is the one who says, let there be light. We love the idea of exciting passion. We love the idea of the tension. But we don't want to give ourselves to the light of God's love because light exposes. It reveals all the things about us that God has not ordered and made perfect. So in this way, all of our images, all of our symbols, all of our parables and metaphors, they fall short when they're applied to God. They can tell us and point to what God is like, but none of it is sufficient. Even Hosea's symbolic description of God being married to his people, it fails to convey the depth of that relationship. Again, in the Torah, a husband who was publicly betrayed by his wife, like Hosea was by Gomer, by law and emotion, he was prevented from renewing their marital life together. But God says to Hosea, go to her, find her, pay off her debts that are not your own. The love of God is greater than law. It's greater than emotion. God is love. Period. Full stop. That is a complete sentence. God is love. But we love to qualify this statement. That yes, God is love, but he's also righteous. Yes, God is love, but he's also just. Yes, God is love, but he's also holy. These are facets of who God is. We're turning the diamond. But so often we say things about God that are just not wholly true. His posture, his fundamental disposition toward the world has always been and will only ever be love. And sometimes this love wounds us. 
Imagine the pain of Hosea receiving the word from God to go and love this woman, Gomer, who has been unfaithful. God's love has the ability to wound us, but it's a wound that reveals to us our truest selves. It strips away everything false and other than what God wants for you. Again, in Origen's words, God's love wounds us by overthrowing all of the kings residing in the kingdom of our hearts. And then in turn, like the people of Israel, we inevitably wound the love of God by betraying that love that taught us to walk. And God's response, how can I give you up? I was the one who found you. I was the one who taught you to walk. I was the one who plucked you like a grape in the wilderness. Having every right to walk away from the covenant God made with his people, he continues to renew his relationship with us even when we continue to wound the love. When we take the gift that God has given us and use it against him, the gift of walking and use it to leave him, God continues to love us while we wound his love. But even in our wounding of God's love, God always descends further. It was Athanasius, a bishop in the fourth century, that he argued humanity was always at risk of falling back into the abyss of nothing from which we were created. We're always at risk of undoing ourselves. That creation came from nothing, and if we're not careful, we're going to fall back into it. And instead of allowing God's creation to fall back into nothingness, God chooses to take on flesh. And in taking on flesh, he's now able to fall with us. By taking on flesh, God as revealed in Christ continues to fall until he is under us in order to arrest our fall into nothingness and to meaningless. And this is the body and blood that we receive every week. A reminder that God refuses to abandon his creation to nothingness, to meaninglessness and chaos, but he himself descended even to the depths of Sheol so that even in death, we cannot be separated from the love of God. And in the body broken and in the blood shed, we are healed so that we can become a people broken, open, and poured out for the world. This is the gospel according to Hosea. God's love wounds. God's love can be wounded. God's love, wounded, heals the wounded. Amen.